0: Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started.
1: Hey, everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Think to Win. Unleashing the Power of Strategic Thinking. Paul, John, and Peter wrote this book, and I have Peter Klein with me today, and I've got Paul Butler, and John is unavailable, but I'm sure he's with us in spirit. So, gentlemen, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having us, Bob. It's a pleasure,
0: Bob.
1: All right, well, you know, to get the ball rolling, um, you know, I love strategic thinking. Do you think that, uh, and this one's for Paul? Do you think strategic thinking is is undervalued in organizations?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, the work that one—that's one of the reasons we thought the book was so important. I think I think it's somewhat of a misunderstanding, too. Bob is when um, one of the things that one of the things that we find out is people get strategic thinking and strategic planning confused in some in some ways you really need to be a good strategic thinker so you can build good strategic plans and uh, I think people talk about it but they don't really understand really what it means and how important it is so uh, I would say the same thing how about you Peter would you agree with me
0: it's a big difference between planning and thinking the strategic thinking is an element of planning but at the same time the way I think about it is anyone can do it anytime it uh, it isn't once a year when you're putting a business plan together for a small medium large organization public or private etc and uh, the whole idea is to take a step back ask yourself some key questions and you can do it managing your day all the way through formal planning and um, the whole idea here uh, is for simple, memorable kind of blueprints, basically to increase folks' success odds, whether it's in business or even in non-business parts of their life. So thinking is much different than formal planning. My experience over four decades, for what it's worth, I would say that there are two pieces of the business pie in the planning end, certainly. From any kind of planning, in any for department, function, company planning, uh, social organization planning, the weakest part I've ever seen in the thinking side and the actual call it written plan side. One is strategic options. This idea of what are the options strategically you have moving forward, whatever you're assessing, addressing. Second happens to be competitive assessment world, understanding competition, absolutely drop dead weakest parts of business plans in my experience. Um,
1: You know, before we move forward, uh, and and, you know, you've kind of answered a little bit, but let's talk about how do you define uh, uh, strategy? Not strategic thinking, but strategy itself, because the the, strategy is, you know. It's more of a thing that you're doing before you get into actionable stuff, and then you'll come into a, a problem, and then you'll throw another, then you'll strategize about solving that problem. How how do you guys define the word strategy? And So let's start with uh, let's start with Paul.
2: That's a good question. I think, and it's kind of really building off what Peter said. I think a strategy is a set of choices that you need to make and. Um, you know, if you're not making really good, if you don't have options and you don't really identify what it needs to take to make those options come to life, uh, I think you have a tactical plan. So strategy, to me, is a set of choices that you need to make. In the book, we say kind of where do you play—that's the space—and how do you win is the choices that you make. And um, and. You know, the, and being able to really take your competitive advantage and and use it in the marketplace and leverage it, but it's hard to identify your competitive advantage and use that as a as a powerful choice sometimes if you haven't done the upfront work. And that's what we talk about in the first few chapters of the book.
1: Peter, what do you think? Do you, do you think um, the the concept of strategy um, people don't really have a good grasp of it?
0: Well, a lot of folks don't have a grasp of it because they weren't kind of trained in it or they may not value it. Uh, And strategy to me is a roadmap. comes down to a roadmap. And at the end of the day, we talk about it in the book specifically, you can spend a day up to six to nine months working on, quote, strategy. From, uh, from a plan standpoint, an opportunity uh, standpoint, etc., But it is a roadmap. When you can put down on a piece of paper on one page, we call it plan on a page. Unfortunately, it's the last page you usually write, not necessarily the first one because it takes a while to get there. But it's a roadmap of where you want to go, why, how you're going to get there, and it goes all the way through the identification, the clarity of communication of who does what, when, and why. And then you move into action, execution, the tactical how to's. But at the end of the day, good strategy is a good roadmap and it's bought into and it's owned by the folks who have to execute it. So if you're talking about a CEO, and I'll be exaggerate to make the point, all the way across and down in the organization to the security guard, can folks communicate verbally what they do every day to help execute the well-articulated strategy, the roadmap.
1: Well, I think you made a, a very salient point there because there's many, many organizations that have a strategy or plan in place, but they lack the communication or, or the um, demystification of C-suite's vision all the way down to the security guard. You cannot... Have a bunch of guys in C-suite talking business, putting a strategy together, and then use the exact same vocabulary and and communication techniques with the whole organization all the way down to the security guy because they just won't relate. It's got to be basically translated at each management level.
0: Hey, Bob, Peter, I want to build on that. Uh, And this might be an insight. We discuss it in the book. But good strategy, it's like Yogi Bear's one of his great quotes, is a good pitcher will always beat a good batter in baseball and vice versa. Well, good strategy, let's call it at a corporate level, at a company level, at a division or business unit level, is a two-way street. And if it's only the one to six people, quote, at the top, developing it without appropriate inputs... From folks who have to own it and execute it, from internal, external situation assessment to understanding what the real key issues are, how they can be addressed, to what are some of the options that come out of that that work. And in my experience, Paul's too, and I know John's, the way it's communicated, I call them ahas. Oh, I didn't understand that. I didn't know that. Because folks will inculcate the strategy and how they are, the, are and what they do in terms of the action part of it, what they're accountable and responsible for, what pieces, if they're part of the process for developing it. Um, so I think that's critical. And along the way, in what we call situation assessment, internal, external, etc., Sometimes can be done in hours, sometimes take months. It depends what facts are available, et cetera. But when you can get folks to literally say, geez, I didn't know that, and literally the ahas of developing it, A, they get actively involved, and B, I come back to the word inculc- inculcate, and they believe it, it's something that's critical to do, and here's my part and what I, I'm doing to make it uh, to, to bring it to life.
2: Yep. but i couldn't agree more bob it's where we've seen it successful using the methodology when people are part of the process and have skin in the game they're speaking the same language that they are at the top of the organization and uh, it really it really make actually it's it can drive a culture in an organization we've seen it seen it do it very successfully
0: and, and bob Dodd, i'm not going to put a plug-in but maybe it's one not so much for the book, but what Paul's group does at Global Edge, they execute with a number of clients a program I've been actively involved in for decades and kind of referred to it at different companies with different acronyms. At Nabisco, I called it strategic thinking and excuse me, I call it um, Nest. Nabisco emphasizes strategic thinking. At Gillette, we called it strategic thinking action results. The idea, though, in his case, it's basically a two- or three-day seminar. Uh, folks get together at all levels of the organization, two or three days, 30, 40 people at a time. And it's to get a level playing field so folks understand the keywords, get the jargon out of the. What are some of the facts? What's expected by senior management? And so the language part of the communications that you mentioned, Bob, is absolutely critical. But somebody's word for strategy is somebody else's word for uh, some tactical consumer promotion plan or something. Yeah, absolutely. I want to
1: dig down into the book a little bit because, you know, it's a a wonderful book. It's almost like uh, like a program because it's so well laid out and you've got these amazing diagrams. But the most fascinating diagram is this hourglass shape that you've used to uh, basically show the, the funnel of specific thinking to work towards um, your strategy and, and, and change and things like that. So um, let's start with, uh, with Paul and, and ask you, how, how do you utilize this hourglass?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Bob. Um, what we do is early in the book, we talk about what we call the umbrella issue, and the umbrella issue really describes what you're trying to solve for in a couple of sentences, and then the whole thought is to get alignment around that collectively with the team of people, and drop really drop that question through that hourglass. And the hourglass uh, is meant to take you through a series of questions that keep adding significance and meaning to it as you go go through it. So you, you we talk about what do we know of what do we know what's most important. And what's unique? So you keep compressing and dive, and you converge on that that part of the hourglass, which we call the situational assessment. So that's really supposed. To, there's a series of questions that we we take people through. We use business tools that as we do that, and when you get down to the insights, what do we know, and the implications? So what? That's really the crust, and that's. That's really starts your path on getting down to those five to six key issues, six to eight, depending on the nature of the organization. And the bottom part of the hourglass is when you start converging. I mean, diverging. You get the choices you make, and like uh, Peter starts says, you start to put that roadmap in place. So the the questions can be used uh, for a team, a brand team, a corporate organization, or a nonprofit is different, and so that's the that's the rationale behind
0: the hourglass. Yeah, I want to build on that. The way to Bob to think and folks who are listening to think of the hourglass. It's a graphic. It's a framework. It's a simple solution to a problem, and two builds on what Paul said in terms of why the hourglass. One is that it gives a company, a group, a department, an individual, a uniform process and some common language as piece parts of it for solving problems and opportunities. When I mentioned a few weaknesses and plans that I've seen over the decades, another one is folks work on these plans for their group, their department, their job, and they spend a week or months on it. They go into a final presentation or 80% into it. They think they've got it pretty well nailed. And one person looks up in the meeting and says, well, geez, you missed this issue. This is a critical issue. It's not addressed. And so as part of this whole hourglass approach, framework again, the idea is very early on, get alignment and an understanding on what are the three key issues on your department, your job, your business, your category, your company. And then you build the entire plan, planning activity and and output and action plans around key issues. And by the way, a key issue could easily be, how do we uh, solve for an opportunity we have? But getting a uniform process and common language for solving these problems and issues That everyone at any level can understand, immediately use, that's what I call thinking strategically, acting decisively. The other side of the hourglass, if you turn it around, maybe even upside down for that matter, is it demystifies the so-called strategic thinking of uh, the elite's or that folks say, "Oh well, those are the two people up in corporate that uh, came out of one of the top 15 uh, MBA programs, whatever." It demystifies it; it makes it accessible to everyone. So it's you know it takes the complexity; it energizes folks. That to me is what the framework of the hourglass accomplish.
1: Um, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, you know, because you've used the word earlier, is the aha moment um, when you guys were were writing the book, and and I'll start with you, Peter. Um, you know, you're a smart guy. And you've been doing stuff for a long time, but and you've known many many things. But when you wrote the book and 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 um, put it in a written form, for you, where was your aha moment where something was like, oh wow, I totally get that now to my core.
0: Facts and data and Information versus myths and um, wishes—I'm almost going to say that to me has been a naha, meaning that over time, when you get the facts on the table, the key facts—not boiling an ocean, but the idea, whether it's internal or external situation of whatever you're addressing—and you get the facts out. And many times, the facts are within the company, the entity, the department, whatever but sometimes folks rely on facts that are well dated but i always use the quote it's easy to predict history and they're acting and moving forward and spending a disproportionate amount of their time they'd say they're focused on things that absolutely dropped dead work in 1974 to 1991 but things have changed since then and so when you Work through the process, we call it, in the book. Um, and again, it's the kind of thing you can do in a day and a few hours getting folks together to, you know, more formal. And you lay out and you folks understand what's really going on. That's when the ahas come again. And I didn't know that. And some practical examples, by the way, are in the book. Um, When we, uh, a few of us joined Duracell, uh, the Gillette company owned five global business units, Duracell was one of them. Uh, We joined in uh, early 01. And um, the marketplace, the business performance of the total Gillette company was basically in the tank for the three to four prior years. Actually, it was five prior years, but basically three to four was known. And most folks came to us and said, and I was at Gillette twice. I was here in the 70s and then came back in the early 01. Most of the folks in the first week said in four of the global business units, if you folks can focus on and help fix the Duracell global business unit, that would make us hum and get us back on good footings financially, marketplace, business uh, metrics, etc. They had acquired Duracell. Uh, at about $7, 7200000000 billion as a new leg on the Gillette stool. And um, in the three or four years it owned it, when we arrived at the market valuation of it was literally about 2 to $2.5 billion. Dollars. They lost five or six market share points. Probably lost 70 to 80% of the folks during the integration. And in reality, there were obviously real issues with Duracell and and in the first couple of years that was a turnaround a very and got back to where it was on profitability and a lot of other good measures the however was when folks understood in their own businesses across the other four global business units some and got the facts out and data out on the table and we absolutely not we but they through the process side of it slayed some myths some Geez, I didn't understand that. We've been operating over this way, but things have truly have changed, uh, and we have to move in a different direction. When that happened, all five cylinders were operating uh, at at the uh, highest level.
2: That's a really good question, and I, until you uh, posed it, I really hadn't thought about it quite like that. But it's, I would say, very similar to what Peter said. The facts tell a great story, and if you string the facts all throughout the process, you start to things start to become very clear. One of the uh, principles we have in the book is uh, fact. Uh, you know, facts actually inform your uh, opinions. But there's another one called linkage. And if you take the way the book's written, from chapter one on down to chapter eight or nine, we call it linkage is connecting the dots. So, give you an example. When you have a SWOT analysis, which is a strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats, we'll go into organization and we'll say, okay, how did you? What's the evidence that is a strength? Well, either they don't give it's not fact-based evidence, or they haven't done the upfront work through a series of questions to really answer what is a strength or not. So, when you when you look at like the New Balance story through Rob Demartini or or if you look at the Keurig example, where uh, every you know with the K cup was coming off the patent, they really had to think differently. But they did a fact-based analysis using consumer data that led them to a really tough choice of partnering with people like Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. So uh, I would the big aha for me was how do you take those facts and you stretch them across and you link
0: them all together, tell a great story. Yeah, one build, Bob, on that. Um, because this was probably another aha I had. It's built into the book, Um, and this may be a little 80,000 feet, but there were basically, you know, five principles, or six of them, I guess, that that underscored um, what we were trying to simply communicate. And Paul touched on a couple of them. Let me just highlight them. One was the hourglass, come back to that, that offers that blueprint, you know, for assessing issues, opportunities, etc., both strategically and operationally. The second principle was to assess the magnitude of an issue, an opportunity, a problem early on, not too late in the game. The third was to use, use those, I mentioned it, Paul did, actual data, facts, Let's ditch the anecdotes, the the myths, but use actual data because once people get that out on the table, if decisions are made in the wrong direction, at least everybody knows it's more of an emotional decision than a fact-based one. The fourth one, at least principle underlying the book was it sorts out a laundry list of issues and opportunities. It's unbelievable. If you go into a strategic or tactical, I call it ideation session, brainstorming session for an hour or two days with five to 20 people, and among other things, you say, okay, what's uh, the core capabilities, the core skills of our company, of our business unit, our department, whatever? Uh, Every time. You're going to after an hour, you've got 80 to 200 of them listed on the wall. And what those are, those are strengths. It's a laundry list of strengths. And if you really understand what a core skill is most companies have two to four or five of them at most it helps you sort out this laundry list early on of what's really important, and you get down to a few vital few. The fifth principle, Paul mentioned, was connect the dots. And, you know, on how you're going to tackle an issue that you've identified and everyone agrees on. And then the last one is to bring everybody on board, as I mentioned before, because at the end of the day, strategic thinking, strategy, planning, a plan, it's all about delivering better results. And if everyone's on board, aligned on how you did it, how you got it, and what they're accountable for, results will come. And by the way, I use a quote from Dwight Eisenhower frequently um, when he was asked after uh, D-Day in World War II, about a week later by a reporter um, publicly, uh, General, did the plan work? And he said the plan was useless. It was the planning that was essential. So again, that's kind of the under, underlying principles of why we wrote this book. I couldn't agree with you more, Peter.
1: Um, Now, I wanted to dig down into the the book because, you know, it's got a definite, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Is this the type of book that you should read from, you know, to the front to the back to get the best value out of it? Because, you know, a lot of people are busy and they tend to jump around in books. So will they get away with it with this type of book?
2: If you read the first two chapters, the first chapter outlines those principles that Peter talked about and then uh, I think that's the second, uh, first two or three chapters, and I think chapter three goes into the hourglass. Then I think you can jump around. I think you need to have a general understanding. So if you went to further on and you started looking at key issues, you would not probably have the right context if you hadn't started out with those first few chapters. So I would read the chapter that talks about the principles, uh, maybe the first three chapters. It's, it's a pretty quick read. Then from there, I think you could jump around and you could, if you wanted to learn a little bit more about it, I think it would be,
0: uh, it would be a lot easier to, because yeah, it re- is a process. Let me reinforce that. It was obviously written in the book a little more linear, almost like an at the hourglass, the visual, such that it does take you from the beginning to the end in terms of how you execute, etc., operationalize what you're thinking about, what you're doing. Um, that said the first few chapters are to me drop-dead critical and a reason for that is if folks don't really understand what a few of the the principles are how we define strategic thinking and its importance then to me they don't even jumping into other chapters are almost what i call a tactic in search of an enduring strategy uh, and From a follow-up standpoint, unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me, um, but I use it in talks frequently. There was a major piece of research done three to four years ago globally on identifying the key drivers in small, medium, large businesses, public, private. What are the critical elements of success with any continuity results-wise? And ironically and a surprise to many folks, the word strategy, even strategic thinking, came up as the number one to two driver benefits for enduring continuous results. And it was across the board. um, But when folks really kind of understand that, because again, whether you're coming right out of school and uh, entry-level job, or you've been working in a company or eight different companies over the your first five to 30 years of your career, basically your heads down, you're trying to execute what you think is your job responsibility. And um, going through those first two chapters, I'd say, are critical to uh, what you get out of the book.
2: Chapter three talks about the pro, uh, the principles and the process. So I think you're, I, if you get through chapter three, yeah. you can jump around
0: a
1: yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, then you're getting it straight into chapter four, uh, which is key to winning. Uh, and then five, vision, seeing the future of winning. And uh, then you kind of go into the strategies, making the right choices. So I'm interested with chapter four and five. Are you. Uh, trying to get the person to understand the philosophy of winning and, and understand, like, now you've got the fundamentals. This is what winning is. And then you can get down to the brass, uh, brass tacks.
2: I, I think so, because when we start the four and five, we start to get into a few more examples. Uh, you start to, you're start you able to read the uh, New Balance, the Keurig, and, and Jamba Juice comes in there. So it really brings the uh, brings the principles and the process to life. I think uh, Chapter 5 is so important because between 4 and 5, 4 is the key issues and implications. 5, you start getting into what does the future look like and what choices you're going to make. So that's where you kind of pivot from the top part of the hourglass down to the bottom.
1: Peter, what do you think? Do you think um, understanding your, your – you know where you're going is a critical part of building a a strategy or plan that has uh, basically potential of of being successful
0: well i'm going to be a little glib and i say is it dark at night (laughs) (laughs) and if you don't know where you're going it's awfully difficult or certainly decreases the success odds of getting to where you think you want to go and again it's really interesting for decades there are companies who When they hear the word vision, they'd say, next question. That's a consultant's word. But to me, in any job, if someone can articulate with clarity, conciseness, and what I call be bright, be brief, be gone, what's the vision? Where are you headed? Where are we headed as a company? And why? What's behind that? Okay, I got it. What comes out of that, and the way you get there is through a number of the elements of the hourglass and the situation assessment, identify key issues, what are the implications and conclusions from all that. When you can think that way, then the action, the build it and they will come, the action plans, the to-dos, the alignment across and down the organization, the tactical day-to-day stuff. I don't want to say it's a laid down bunt but boy is it focused And in my experience when you kind of go through this and you can do it from a bottoms up top-down standpoint etc with the involvement of folks, when you do this, people say, you know what we got to talk about my job description again. I think I can eliminate 5 to 35% of what's on this one to six pages of my job description. Useful maybe five years ago, 20 years ago, but it's not keeping me focused on things that can make a difference as I'm executing what we agreed to. So that's where my head's at. I think it's important for folks to do that. And by the way, huge difference between a mission and a vision. You know, you'll read that on the plaque in the lobby of companies. It shouldn't change. It's some, a lot of it is general. In many cases, boilerplate has to do with you know beyond integrity and trust and ethics and all that good stuff that should be part of a mission of any company. But a vision is has a very different definition to me than a uh, than a mission.
2: You know, Peter, you said something that uh, I think is worth mentioning. Uh, you know, for two reasons. First of all, you uh, a lot of times a company will have a vision statement, and that'll directionally take them where they think they need to go. But what we say is, make sure you or when, especially in Chapter Five, it's hard. You need to basically test the vision through your situational assessment. It's hard to uh, it's hard to talk about where you want to take the company one to three years out or longer. If you haven't done your homework about what's going on in the marketplace, and that's the top part of the hourglass, and then we even get a little bit more specific with the concept of governing statements, which is really taken a vision and, and we, we put these in place with organizations around a, a, a business unit that kind of put some guardrails on on really where they want to play. But we'll, we'll we'll go into organizations and we'll see mission and vision statements. And unless they're rooted, especially the vision work, unless it's rooted in a good discussion of what's going on, what's changing, it's, 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 it can be meaningless.
1: Well, I, I wanted to ask you actually you know, what can an organization do today to start moving towards a more uh, strategic uh, way of, of thinking uh, to, to be more competitive and, and go for the win compared to way, maybe what they're doing? um right now and and obviously they should get the book but i mean what can they be doing today or tomorrow to start moving in that direction
0: one of them is to understand are you in a hole how deep is the hole what get agreement and i'm going to call it alignment again against around key decision makers in your department function organization division company get get agreement on again What are the critical issues and opportunities facing you? And then you take a step back and say, hey, look, are we comfortable that we've got it nailed? Hey, you know, we've got plans, programs, and folks are held accountable and they know their jobs and that we don't have a hole or we have a hole and it's six inches deep or it might be a half a mile deep. And getting that basic understanding against uh, among key decision makers, mm-hmm. to me, is the first step. So first, make sure there's an understanding of what's working, what isn't working, and can we do things substantially differently that will make a difference? And if so, then how do we go about doing that? We need to change some of our planning process, our thinking process. We have to engage more of the right people down and across the organization uh, making it up, whatever it is. But to me, you got to take that first breath. And by the way, when I use the word alignment, and that's an overused word in business big time, to me, alignment is an outcome. It's not a process among two or 14 or 5,000 people. It occurs when everybody understands and agrees on how their company, function, department, whatever is going to compete, how they're going to win, and they know precisely what their own role and accountability is. And once it's achieved, you know, folks find it much easier to set their priorities, their focus areas, and execute.
1: Paul, what do you got to say?
2: I would, I would uh, say one thing, and we do this actually when we interview people who are bringing us in to do work. what we'll we'll ask them as a starting point, and Peter's right, is what are you really trying to solve for? But what you're really trying to solve for, what what is going on outside the walls of your building that's causing you these issues Peter are talking about? And then ultimately, if you find out what's going on, whether it's consumers or competitors, whatever, that's gonna drive how you act internally. So we, we ask them to create an umbrella issue that basically is not solution-based at this point, but is more. Uh, what are you really trying to solve for? What are you really trying to do? And then the next question is, what do we know? So you got to be the, the the hardest thing is is jumping in with solutions, looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. So what we say is, be very diligent about trying to identify what the issues are, and they're usually driven. If they have internal issues, 100% of the time we find they're driven from external factors.
0: Uh, and to build on that, one of the things I see now, I operate more in the consumer products uh, universe and from a career standpoint, focus, etc. cetera. Uh, but I do know a number of other sectors are not too dissimilar, especially in developed countries, and we live in one of them. And that is a number of sectors, categories that folks compete in they refer to as and the numbers show it slow to no growth some are deflating in size and so at the end of the day when you step back and say you know how do we sell more widgets or more of the service offering what if you're in the service side of the industry it comes down to competition and a share conquest game how do I compete more effectively and get a disproportionate share of market from my direct competition. And again, stepping back and understanding the real competitive frame, who you're really competing with and how consumers or customers view that and where you, and how you can source business in a category that is could be deflating or at least call it treading water or some minor increase versus what it used to be. So a lot of folks I know in industry, they got carried or their companies did and major brands over time through category growth. And they held or increased their market share a little bit, but category growth was meaningfully enough, meaningful enough that it carried the day in terms of real volume growth. Those days in developed countries are mostly over for a number of industries, and so it's what I call a share conquest game. And understanding, identifying as part of your situation assessment, the real insights and conclusions and implications that come out of that competitive framework and understanding leads to a whole set of some different choices to make. And then you assess them and decide which ones you're going to place your bets on.
1: We've been chatting about the book, Think to Win, Unleashing the Power of Strategic Thinking. And we've had Paul and Peter and John wasn't able to make it today. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show. It was fascinating.
2: Bob, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. And -hmm. and, uh, we enjoyed our time. Thanks for the invite.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlick. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.